If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. In Hebrew, that's Yeshiyahu, the Lord is salvation, or Yeshua is the Lord. And we're in verse 14. It says, also the sons of those who afflicted you, talking about the Gentile nations that have attacked Israel, shall come bowing to you. That is, they will come up to Jerusalem throughout the millennial kingdom to worship the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, as we're told. And all who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you, that is Jerusalem, the city of the Lord, Zion or Zion, of the Holy One of Israel. And we stopped last week looking at that phrase, the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. What does the scripture reveal to us about the one who is the Holy One of Israel? So if you grab your notes from last week, we were going to look at 31 Bible verses that contain the phrase, the Holy One of Israel, to see what that can teach us about the Holy One. The first one we looked at was 2 Kings 19.22, where we find that the Holy One of Israel is the Lord. The second was Psalm 71.22, where we find that the Holy One of Israel is God. So those two verses by themselves tell us that the Lord is God and always was. Then the third one was Psalm 78.41, where again it reiterates that the Holy One of Israel is God. And the fourth was Psalm 89.18, where we learn that the Holy One of Israel is the Lord. So in those four verses, two of them tell us that the Holy One of Israel is the Lord, and the others who tell us that the Holy One of Israel is God. And that's where we pick up today with number five, and that's from Isaiah chapter one. Somebody out there is thinking, I hope he's got a purpose to make us look at these 31 verses. Well, I do. So just hang on to your seats. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. Alas, sinful nation. Oh, he's talking about Israel. A people laden with iniquity. What's another term for iniquity? Lawlessness. A brood of evildoers. Uh-oh. Children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. How does the Bible define having forsaken the Lord? Not keeping his commandments. But they're coming up to Jerusalem. And they're bringing lambs to sacrifice on the altar. What does he mean they've forsaken him? What do they do on the way up to the altar? They sacrifice their children to Moloch. And they think that just because they bring God a lamb, they're square. So the indictment God's bringing against Israel here is... How can you claim to be my children when you walk in sin and lawlessness? It says they have forsaken the Lord. See how the word Lord is spelled? That's the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, Yodevave. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. Okay, so here the Holy One of Israel refers to the Lord. They have turned away backward. What does that mean? means they have turned their backsides to God. That's one thing you never did. 
Notice, even if, have you watched the movie The Ten Commandments? When they approach Pharaoh, they approach facing him, and then how do they leave? They back away. You never turn your backside to the king. Same with God. When the priests would approach, they would approach toward the Holy of Holies, and when they left, they retreated backwards. They never turned around. So it says they've turned around backward. It means they're showing their buttocks to God, which was a great insult. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 19. The sixth occurrence of the Holy One of Israel that we're going to look at, 519. We'll start with 18 just for context, so we don't start in the middle of a, of a sentence. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. They say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Oh, didn't we just study a lot about that in the New Testament, darkness and light, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So this hymn in verse 19 that is the Holy One of Israel, who does that relate back to? Verse 16, the Lord of hosts and God. So they're saying that the Lord of hosts is God. But wait a minute, we know the Lord of hosts is our Messiah, Yeshua. Does that mean Yeshua is God? Yeah, the more we study out the Holy One of Israel, we're more, the more we're going to be convinced that's true. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, what is fire a picture of? God's judgment. The stubble pictures the sins and those who are sinners. And the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will ascend like dust, because they have rejected the Torah of the Lord of hosts. Who gave the Torah? The Lord of hosts. Who's the Lord of hosts? That's her Messiah, Yeshua. And despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So here the Holy One of Israel is the Lord of hosts and is the one who has given us the Torah. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20, gives us an important time hack. This is number 8, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day, what day? The day of the Lord, an end times prophecy, that the remnant of Israel, that is those who have survived, and such as have escaped to the house of Jacob, Israel being the southern kingdom, Jacob the northern kingdom, will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So here we find the Holy One of Israel is the Lord, the mighty God. 
Where have you seen that phrase, the mighty God, before? What's that? Isaiah 9, just before it. Turn back to Isaiah 9, chapter 6. Remember our song, Kiyela Julad Lanu. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And then what? Mighty God. So our Messiah Yeshua is not only called Lord, but he's also called the Mighty God. Number nine, Isaiah chapter 12, verse six. Hmm. Let's just read all of chapter 12. Because it specifically identifies the time period. Verse one, and in that day, the day of the Lord, you will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you're angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. What's salvation, Hebrew? Yeshua. So here, so far, we have Lord God and Yeshua, salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Hey, wait a minute. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, that's what's going on is the implementation of this verse. In the ceremony in the Feast of Tabernacles called Simcha Beit HaShoiva, they've gone, and down, they've gone down and drawn water from the pool of Siloam. The word Siloam comes from the word for the sent one. And they poured out by the altar and prayed for the life-giving waters, by which they mean the rain. And Messiah stands up as they're doing it and says, He who believes in me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. That he will be that well of salvation. Verse 4, And in that day, still in the day of the Lord, you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. Talking about delivering us from the tribulation period. This is known in all the earth. That's actually not translated right. It should be, make this known in all the earth. That is, tell it from shore to shore and pole to pole. Cry out and shout on Hadron and Zion. Zion is prophetic Jerusalem with Messiah dwelling there. For great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst so the holy one of israel will dwell on earth in jerusalem throughout the messianic kingdom does this tell you who the holy one of israel is this is our messiah yeshua who is called here in verses four to six he's called the lord Why throughout the New Testament does it always say the Lord Yeshua? What's it trying to tell us? The Yeshua is the Lord. Number 10 is from Isaiah chapter 17, verse 7. Which begins in that day, which again focuses right in on the day of the Lord. A man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. 
So here, who does it say is the Holy One of Israel? Our Maker. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created through him that were made. He is the Maker. So again, that Maker is Yeshua. Number 11, Isaiah 29.19. What's making me look at all these verses? Why did I want to do that? Because I still have a lot of people that send me emails to say, the Bible never says Yeshua's God. You're making this up. Well, let's keep looking. Verse 19, the humble, ooh, those are called the poor in spirit in the Beatitudes, the humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So here he's referred to as the Lord. Number 12 is from Isaiah 30, verse 11. It says, get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Oh my. Who's, who's crying that? Yeah, the false prophets. The people simply don't want to hear it. And it refers back to verse 9. Children who will not hear the law of the Lord. So here in Isaiah 30 verse 11 is referring to the Lord as the Holy One of Israel. Again, the giver of the Torah. Keep a finger here. It's not too far off topic. Go back to Genesis 49. Is there any significance to the fact that it was our Messiah, Yeshua, that gave us the commandments in the first place? Yeah. Verse 10. Genesis 49, verse 10, in times prophecy about Judah. says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, meaning the, the descendants of Judah have the right to the throne of Israel, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Who's Shiloh? That's the Messiah. So the lawgiver comes from the tribe of Judah as Messiah does. Interesting. So back to Isaiah 30. Verse 12. Therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you have despised this word. What is this word? It's Torah. Yeah. And trust in oppression and perversity and relying on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall. So again, the Lord, the giver of Torah. Verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. But look at how Lord and God are spelled. 
that's not really what this says. It says, this says, for thus says my Lord, and then the tetragrammaton, which we usually say the Lord, or Adonai. So this is my Lord, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So the Holy One of Israel here in verse 15 is my Lord, the Lord. What's the difference between the Lord and my Lord? It's very specific to you that you have accepted the Lord as your Lord. Yeah, the one you will follow, the one you will serve. Isaiah 31 1 is number 15. That puts us almost halfway through, so hang on. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. When God said, you're going to be attacked from the north, let me defend you. They said, no, God, we'll take care of it. We'll go hire Egypt. They'll defend us. We don't need you. Rely on horses, that was military might, who trust in chariots because they're many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. So here the Holy One of Israel is called the Lord. Isaiah 37, 23. Who has reproached and blasphemed? Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? In other words, in a haughty arrogance. Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have reproached the Lord. So who is the Holy One of Israel? The Lord. Yes, because I'm going to look it up right here, but it's going to say, not the Lord, but my Lord. My Lord. So when Israel responds to Sennacherib's envoys that are uh, mocking God, the response is, you're mocking my Lord. And he's listening. Isaiah 37. That's exactly what Hezekiah does. Is Hezekiah turns to the Lord and says, Lord, did you hear what they're saying about you? Never mind what they're saying about me. Look what they're saying about you. Yep, my Lord. So they put it here in our Bible, says the Lord, but it's my Lord. Isaiah 41, 14. Isaiah 12, 6, that we looked at at number 9, lets us know that the Lord and God and my Lord, these are all referring to Yeshua. But in verse 14, it gets even more specific than that. Isaiah 41, 14. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. By worm, it just means one without strength. You men of Israel, 
I will help you, says the Lord. So there's the first one, Lord. And your Redeemer. Ah, that word Redeemer is from Goel, which is a kinsman Redeemer, which is a near relative who can and will pay the debt that you owe. So the Lord, to be your Redeemer, must be flesh and blood human being. The Holy One of Israel. So this, with Isaiah 12, 6, lets us know absolutely we're talking about our Messiah, Yeshua. In that same chapter, verse 16, You shall winnow them, the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. So the Holy One of Israel is the Lord. Number 19, chapter 41, verse 20. That they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Here the Holy One of Israel is the Lord. Isaiah 43, verse 3. For I am the Lord... That's the first one. Your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba in your place. So here the Holy One of Israel is the Lord, your God, and your Savior. And the scripture tells us there's only one Savior. Hmm. Number 21 is Isaiah 43, 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. So there's that kinsman Redeemer again, which requires him to be flesh and blood. The Holy One of Israel. Number 22 is in Isaiah 45, verse 11. Notice how many of the 31 are in Isaiah. And the name of Isaiah is Yeshayahu, the Lord is salvation, or Yeshua is the Lord. That's why he's going through so many of these proofs, trying to get people to understand what is the traditional non-Messianic Jews problem with Yeshua is that God couldn't take on the form of a man. What's the book of Isaiah trying to tell us from beginning to end? That he has to. Isaiah 45, 11. Thus says the Lord. So there's the word Lord, tetragrammaton. The Holy One of Israel and his maker, again, that Yeshua, our Messiah, is the maker of all things. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. Number 23 is Isaiah 47, verse 4. As for our Redeemer, so there's the first name, Redeemer. The Lord of hosts is his name. So Redeemer and Lord of hosts. Whenever you hear that phrase, Lord of hosts, what does it make you think? In Times Prophecy, the return of Messiah in Revelation 
the Holy One of Israel. So the Redeemer and the Lord of hosts is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 48, 17 is number 24. Isaiah 48, 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, again the kinsman Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, your God. Who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. So who gave the commandments? The Holy One of Israel. Number 25 is Isaiah 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, there's the first name, Lord. The Redeemer of Israel. Redeemer, that's the Goel, the kinsman Redeemer. Their Holy One. To him whom man despises. Think about all the prophecies of how Messiah would be despised at his crucifixion. To him whom the nation abhors. To the servant of rulers, kings shall arise, princes also shall worship. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel... And he has chosen you. Number 26. Isaiah 54 verse 5. For your maker. There's the first name maker. Is your husband. Husband the bridegroom. The Lord of hosts is his name and your Redeemer. So Lord of hosts and Redeemer. Is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. So in that one verse you have maker, husband, Lord of hosts, Redeemer, and God. Is there anyone out there in go-to-meeting land or in this auditorium that so far doesn't believe Yeshua is God? If so, we have five more verses. Number 27 is Isaiah 55, verse 5. Surely you call a nation you do not know. Talking about calling the Gentiles to Messiah. And nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord, your God. So Lord, God, and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So Lord, God, and the Holy One of Israel. Number 28 is Isaiah chapter 60, verse 9. Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, that is to bring them into the Messianic kingdom. Their silver and their gold with them to the name of the Lord your God. So put Lord and your God. And to the Holy One of Israel, 
because he has glorified you. So the Lord is God, is the Holy One of Israel. Number 29 is from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, which is the one we're working on today. This one is the city of the Lord, so the Lord, L-O-R-D, in capital letters, the Holy One of Israel. Two more. Number 30 is Jeremiah 50, 29. And honestly, I can't remember if I ran out of occurrences or if I just got tired of writing them down. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 29. Isaiah chapter, no, Jeremiah chapter 50. We got out of Isaiah. Jeremiah 50, verse 29. Call together the archers against Babylon, all you who bend the bow. And camp against it all around. Let none of them escape. Repay her according to her work. That is according to what she did to Israel. According to all she has done. So do to her. For she has been proud against the Lord. Against the Holy One of Israel. So in Jeremiah 50, 29. The Holy One of Israel is the Lord. And lastly number 31. Is in Jeremiah 51 verse 5. For Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah, by his God, the Lord of hosts. So God and Lord of hosts. Though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. So the Holy One of Israel is God, is the Lord of hosts. Somebody out there is about to ask a question. Go ahead. Wait, what were the first four? The first four were Second Kings nineteen twenty two, Psalm seventy one twenty two, Psalm seventy eight forty one, and Psalm eighty nine eighteen. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm. Yes, ma'am. The non-Messianic Jews do not believe that God can take a human form. So they're refuting God's word? <laughs> Rachel, we'll just have to engage when we get the opportunity. Yeah. How, how many people outside of our group here, do you think have ever sat down and said, let's trace the Holy One of Israel through? What's that, Thomas? I was wondering if they base a verse on, to have that particular viewpoint, do they base a verse on that? No. No. Um, Non-Messianic Judaism is like Catholicism. That is, they put doctrine above Scripture. So because they say it, it doesn't matter what the scripture says. Their doctrine takes precedence. <laughs> Things just never change. Or so it seems. There it is. I was just looking for this last week, wasn't I? 
So let me read it to you now, even though you might think it's irrelevant. What did the Catholic Church require of a Jewish convert to Christianity in the year 325 Common Era under the Emperor Constantine? Quote, I renounce all customs, rites, legalisms, unleavened breads, and sacrifices of lambs of the Hebrews, and all other feasts of the Hebrews, sacrifices, prayers, aspersions, purifications, sanctifications, and propitiations and fasts, and new moons, and Sabbaths, and superstitions, and hymns, and chants, and observances, and synagogues, and the food and drink of the Hebrews. In one word, I renounce everything Jewish, every law, rite, and custom. And if afterwards I shall wish to deny and return to Jewish superstition, or shall be found eating with the Jews, or feasting with them, or secretly conversing and condemning the Christian religion instead of openly confuting them and condemning their vain faith, then let the trembling of Gehazi cleave to me, as well as the legal punishments to which I acknowledge myself liable. And may I be anathema to the, in the world to come, and may my soul be set down with Satan and the devils." Unquote. That's from the book, The Conflict of the Church in the Synagogue by James Parks, 1974, pages 397 to 398. So think about it. What did they require? That they renounced every commandment of God. They must break each and every one. They must break Shabbat. They must eat pigs, etc., etc. What's that, Miss Betty? Do, we have a copy of that? Do you have a copy of that? If not, I will send it out. I'll make sure you get a copy. Thank you. You're welcome. Include me in those copies. Are you on our email list, Barbara? Yes. Then you'll get it. Yes, Linda. Okay. Hot diggity. <laughs> if the Catholic Church required renunciation of everything Jewish, that would have included the Ten Commandments. Yes. Yet they incorporated Nine of the ten. Nine of the ten. So they just reinstated? Yes, because now you're doing it not because God commanded it, but because they commanded it. So you're honoring the Pope as God, not the God who gave the commandments on Mount Sinai. Okay, let's not do that. Put that on your bad thing list. Okay, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 60. That was a long rabbit trail, or Ibex trail, as I prefer to call it. But I think it's important to see that the Bible stresses over and over again, Yeshua truly is the Lord, he truly is God. So in modern theology, when people say, 
forget God's commandments, do Jesus' commandments instead. They don't realize that Jesus gave the commandments in the first place. Okay. Isaiah chapter 60, we're up to verse 15. Everybody go, woohoo. Verse 15 says, Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, talking about Jerusalem, so that no one went through you. Just think back to what Samuel Longhorn Clemens wrote in the mid-19th century. How did he describe Israel? As a what? Malaria-infested swamp. Malaria swamp and uninhabitable desert. That there was nothing but one or the other. Wasn't Jerusalem there then? Was Jerusalem there then? Yes, it was. But it was a desert? Uninhabited ruins. Yeah. Virtually nobody lived in the entire land of Israel. It was just uninhabitable. And that's because of what Rome did to it. In 70 AD, where they cut down every tree and then plowed the ground with salt. Yeah. So they made it like that. But the Bible says when Israel starts coming back into the land, it would just flourish like the Rose of Sharon. Oh, and if you've been through the Sharon Valley, oh, it's so beautiful. But it says, I will make you an eternal excellence. So whereas you have been forsaken and hated, that's going to be over. When Messiah returns and establishes the kingdom, Israel will be an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. Do the generations stop when we come to the new heavens, the new earth? The answer is no. They go on forever. But let's take a moment and look at Psalm 48, verse 2. Psalm 48 is about 1948, oddly enough. Psalm's the 19th book, and Psalm 48's about 1948. We'll start in verse 1 for context. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. So this praise is coming to God from Jerusalem, from the Temple Mount. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces, he is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled, they passed by together, they saw it and they marveled. They were troubled, they hastened away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain is of a woman in birth pangs. Also, what time period is being described here? The tribulation period. Ah. And then verse 12 backs up. It says, let me tell you how this story unfolds. It says, walk about Zion and, count, and go all around her. Count her towers. The towers, the word tower there is migdal. It's a military fortress. That is, when Jerusalem comes back into Israeli hands and is militarily strong. That was 1948. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. Do you all see that? The generation following? 
take your pencil and strike through the word following. The Hebrew is Lador Acharon, which is the last generation. This is the verse that tells us when Jerusalem fell back into Jewish hands in 1967, the last generation began. What verse is that? That's verse 13. Yep, and that generation, according to Psalm 90, is between 70 and 80 years. 70 years expired in 2018. 80 expires in 2028. So sometime in that range, the day of the Lord begins. If I'm interpreting it correctly. Go to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 18. Isaiah 65, verse 18. Isaiah 65 and 66 are about the return of the Lord. And verse 18 is about the reestablishment of Jerusalem as the throne of God on earth in the Messianic kingdom. It says, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. See that emphasis on rejoicing? Which of the feasts or festivals of Israel does it remind you of? Tabernacles, which is about the establishment of the kingdom. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. How many times are you going to say joy and rejoice? The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Oh, when Messiah returns. Verses 24 and 25 describe it. It shall come to pass that before, oh, verse 25, and we'll just go to 25. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. That is, the animals won't hurt people anymore. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. I have a question from somebody. It says, Wayne, can you explain how we know Shiloh is Messiah? Shiloh comes from the word for the sent one. Who is the sent one sent to mankind to bring our peace, to be prince of peace? It's Messiah. Okay, back to Isaiah chapter 60. That's better than saying, because the commentators say so. <laughs> Let's go to Lamentations. We never go to Lamentations. Why would we go to Lamentations? To be sad. Okay. It is pretty depressing. Lamentations chapter 2. Who wrote it? Jeremiah, Jeremiah who's called the weeping prophet. Yeah. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 15. It's talking about Jerusalem. All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? The answer is yes. The difference is the time period. When Israel walked away from God, God brought cursing upon the land. 
But when they return back to the Lord, God will restore the beauty. And not just the beauty that was lost, but that beauty multiplied several times over. We're going to find out. Back to Isaiah 60. We're up to verse 16. You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, and your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Look how many descriptions of the Lord there are in that verse. The Lord, yes, that's the Tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters, Shodhevave, that unpronounceable name of God. Why is it unpronounceable? No vowels. No vowels. In biblical Hebrew, how do you know how many syllables a word has? There's a syllable for every pronounceable vowel. What if you have no vowels? Your guess is good as mine. How many syllables is the name? It could be two, it could be three, it could be four. We just don't know. Let's do an English example. The name is J-N. How do you pronounce J-N? No, it's Jane. Jean. Janie. Joan. So the answer is without the vowels. We have no idea. Who's that guy on the TV show? JR. JR Church, right. Okay. Let's take a little look at the cross references for this verse, starting with Psalm 132. Psalm 132. Verses 2 to 5. The key verses, too. We want to read all the way 2 to 5. How he, that is the Lord, swore. No. How David swore to the Lord. And vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. So the Lord is the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Why does he keep referencing the mighty one of Jacob? What's a mighty one? A strong warrior. That's exactly right. So when you say in Psalm 9 verse 6, El Gabor, mighty God, the word Gabor, that word mighty means a mighty warrior. So he is the mighty one of Jacob. Let's go to Psalm 132 verse 5. We just did that one. So let's go to Isaiah 49 26. Isaiah 49, 26. Ooh. You don't want to be on the Lord's bad side. 
Verse 26 is talking about all those who come against Jerusalem. It says, I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh. They shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So there are the words that mean the same thing are Lord, Savior, Redeemer, and the Mighty One of Jacob. Why does he keep using that phrase, the Mighty One of Jacob? As opposed to the Holy One of Israel. He defeats Satan, the false Messiah, and all nations of the world that come against Jerusalem. Does he sit up in the heavens in fear that he might lose this battle? He does not. Ah, don't want to be on God's bad side. In the song, they have to call him the mighty one of Israel. <laughs> the mighty one of Jacob. Yep, -er. I wonder why. Isaiah 60, verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. The point here is all that Israel has lost over the years, having been taken from them through captivity and invasion, etc., will be restored not to the level it was before. But way above. Think back to Job. Turn back to Job 42 verse 10. All that Job lost was restored plus. Go back to Job 42.10 And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And that's what God is trying to get across to Israel. When you come back to me, the land is going to flourish. You're going to have peace and prosperity. You're going to have wealth like you've never imagined. How can God do that? Well, think about the New Jerusalem. What are the streets paved with? Gold. God has no problem delivering all the wealth that he's promised. And where's the wealth going to come from? Think of Israel's exodus from Egypt. What did Egypt send them out with? Gold and all kinds of riches. The scripture tells us that the Gentile nations are going to bring the wealth of the world to Jerusalem to present it to Messiah. Now verse 18. Ah. Sometimes it's really cool to look behind the English. In a lot of these words, a lot of these words that we've been reading about are participles, ongoing action to maintain your faith, to maintain your love. And it doesn't always come through in English, but here's something in verse 18. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land. What is the word for violence? Hamas. Who keeps attacking Israel from their southern border without stop? Hamas. 
So no more terrorism, no more incoming missiles, no more firebombs, no more exploding vests, etc. Neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation. What do you suppose that word is for salvation? Yeshua. And your gates praise. Verses 19 to 22 talk about the eternal kingdom. Not just the messianic kingdom, but into eternity future. The sun shall no longer be your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. People misunderstand this and say there won't be a sun and moon. There will be a sun and moon. So that we can tell one day from another and when the feast days are, it says the sun will no longer be your light by day because Messiah in our midst will outshine the sun. He will be the source of the light. Isn't that cool? Nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light. What's that word everlasting mean? Forever and ever without end. And your God, your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, that is, it won't get dark. Nor shall your moon withdraw itself. Wait a minute, how are we going to sleep if it never gets dark? Close the shutters. <laughs> scripture doesn't say we're going to sleep. What does the scriptures tell us about how we will live in the eternal kingdom? The answer is very little. So we'll find out when we get there. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Wait a minute. That's twice in two verses God said that the Lord will be your everlasting light. And the days of your mourning shall be ended. That is mourning over the exile, the exiles and all the, the wars and all that are going to have been forgotten. Just forgotten. Because it will never happen again. Also that your people shall all be righteous. What's that word all mean? Every single one. They shall inherit the land forever. Wait a minute. The promise to Abraham was that his descendants would possess the land forever. So does forever still go on into eternity? It does. But this also means there will be live people in their physical bodies into eternity. There'll be no death. There'll be no sin. It will be like the Garden of Eden before the fall. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one, referring to a tribe of Israel, shall become a thousand. And a small one, again referring to a tribe, a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Now let's go look at Revelation 21 to see how God in Revelation describes the very same thing. Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 to 27. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. 
And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. So are there still nations in the new heavens and the new earth? Yes, there are. Are there still live people in their physical mortal bodies having children? Yes, there are. But no more sin, no more death. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. And in parenthesis, there shall be no night there. What do shutting the gates of a city represent? Protection, Protection from an outside threat. No more outside threats. No more war. No need to shut the gates at all. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. That is, they will continue to come in to worship the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles into eternity future. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is, everyone saved. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant. Go back to Jeremiah 31, 34. Jeremiah 31, 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor every, and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I'll remember no more. Is this today? No, it's not today. Don't we wish? Yes, this is the eternal kingdom. Every person alive in the world knows the Lord personally. They're all saved by faith. It's the ultimate fulfillment of Romans eleven twenty six. Romans eleven twenty six. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written. And we talked about the land promise being forever. Let's go back to Genesis 15 and see. If you have faith, the word faith in Hebrew is imunah, comes from the same verb as our word amen means to believe God will do exactly what God says he's going to do. Genesis 15:18 On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Avram that's Abraham before God changes his name saying To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So all the way from the Nile River to the Euphrates River, 
and everything in between. Has Israel ever had that much land? No, but they will. It will be fulfilled and it will be forever. Then if we go back to Isaiah chapter 60 to verse 22 and it says a little one shall become a thousand a small one a strong nation. It's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel are going to expand further and further and further and further as Israel's descendants will be truly like the sand of the seashore as God originally promised. How's it going to happen? Verse 22 ends. I, the Lord, will hasten it, comma what? In its time. That's why the apostles kept saying, Lord, is it now that you're going to do all this? Is it the time? What the Lord keeps saying? Eh, keep your shirt on. All right. Isaiah chapter 61. Wait a minute. Ooh. Okay, Sue also added that in the interlinear, it's wor Hebrew word number, Shiloh is 7886, a term for Messiah. Okay. Isaiah chapter 61. You've all heard these words before because Messiah read them in a synagogue in Galilee. Verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God. No, that's not what it says. See the word Lord God. You guys already know. The word Lord, the way it's spelled there is my Lord. So it should say the spirit of my Lord, the Lord. So the word God isn't there. It's my Lord, Adonai, and the tetragrammaton, which is the Lord, is upon me. Who's the me? It's Messiah, Yeshua. How do we know? Because he says so. The spirit of my Lord, the Lord, is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me. What does the word Messiah mean? Anointed one. The Lord has anointed me. I'm the anointed one, Messiah says. To preach good tidings to the poor. That word poor refers to the humble. As in the poor in spirit in the Beatitudes. We'll look at that in a minute. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted over what? Their sin. Brokenhearted because we sinned against the Lord our God. To proclaim liberty to the captives. What's that word, liberty? Set us free from sin. Remember, before we got saved, we were slaves to sin. Messiah came to set us free so that sin would no longer have dominion over us. In the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Let's break it down a little bit. Matthew chapter 3. Why in Matthew chapter 3 does the Holy Spirit descend like a dove upon Messiah? It says the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So it literally physically gets fulfilled in Matthew chapter 3. Verses 1 through 17. In those days, what days? The days of Teshuvah. 
which run from the first day of the Hebrew month of Elul until the tenth day of Tishri, which is the day of atonement or Yom Kippur. Those 40 days are called the days of Teshuvah, which means repentance. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent. Why is he preaching repent? Because it's the time of repentance, Teshuvah. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means it's being offered. Did the people know how it was being offered? No, they don't. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Where was he preaching? In the wilderness of Judea. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. How do you prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight? Through repentance. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. What's significant about that? That's the traditional dress of a prophet. Didn't people always wear camels here? No, talk about an uncomfortable garment. Very hot, very itchy, very scratchy. Most people wore linen because it's nice and smooth and cool. And his food was locusts and wild honey. I hate to burst your bubble, he didn't eat bugs. That word locust refers to the carob tree. The carob tree, that's where they make the phony chocolate. So if you buy a chocolate bar that doesn't say real chocolate, it's carob. The word in Hebrew is the same as the bug locust because when the wind blows through the carob tree, it makes the sound of a locust. So Israel's kind of interesting in how they name things. In Israel, what's the Hebrew word for a hand grenade? Yad Ramon. Yad means hand, and Ramon is a pomegranate. What's a pomegranate? It's a fruit that has all those seeds inside so that it bursts. Okay. And wild honey refers not to bee honey, but to date honey from the date trees. But there were bees. As, as an aside, you can eat locusts if you want to. I choose not to. There are some kosher bugs, apparently. Yeah, locusts are kosher. You can eat them, but I don't recommend it. They're yucky. <laughs> And bee honey is good. There's nothing wrong with bee honey. That's just not what the prophets ate in Israel. Then Jerusalem, all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Skeptics say, that, that's ridiculous. All Jerusalem, all Judea, they wouldn't go down there. But the answer is yes. Every year at the time of Teshuvah, they would go down and be baptized or immersed in the Jordan River. People have been preaching this very same thing for many years before John. Was that their annual bath? No. Ah, <laughs> uh, no. Bad boy. Number seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. Uh-oh, he's calling them sons of the devil. Why would he do that? Because they were leading people away from God. That's right. They had no intention of repenting. So she warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Repentance has something to do with fleeing the wrath to come, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Meaning, if I have misjudged you, which I haven't, prove it. 
by acting like you've truly repented. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That was the Jewish teaching then, and it still is in many places, that we're saved by circumcision because we're the descendants of Abraham. And John says, don't think that salvation comes that way. It doesn't. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He's calling us rocks. Hard-headed. Okay, fine. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, the good fruit is the obedience to the commandments that comes from repentance, is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down, what did they see? Divided tongues of fire. Yeah. His winnowing fan is in his hand. We just read that in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. So what is the chaff? The chaff for the unsaved, the sinful, the lawless ones. And will gather his wheat into the barn. Trust me, you want to be the wheat, not the chaff. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What's unquenchable mean? Never goes out, does it? Never. Then Yeshua came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him. Saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Yeshua answered and said to him, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Note that word there, or phrase, to fulfill. That's from the verb plurao, just like in Matthew 5, 17. Do people argue this means that Messiah's baptism abolished all righteousness? No. That would be silly, wouldn't it? No one ever has to be baptized again. Says then he allowed him. Why was it necessary for Messiah to be baptized? He had no sin. He's about to enter into his ministry. And what does a priest do upon entering the ministry? They must be immersed. They must be baptized. So he is following the commandments of God. Well, he wrote them. He knows what they are. Verse 16, when he had been baptized, Yeshua came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61. And suddenly a voice came from heaven. We call that voice from heaven a bot coal. Bot coal. Saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Let's go also to Luke chapter 4. After fasting for how many days? 40 days. How long is the period of teshuva or repentance? 40 days. It ends on what day? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's when Luke chapter 4 happens. Satan is defeated on the Day of Atonement, which is the same day that the Jewish sages say Adam and Eve failed in the garden and fell. Luke chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. I will start in 16 just because, well, let me make a point. So he came to Nazareth, 
Nazareth. Nazareth is made up of two Hebrew words, Netzer and Tov, which means the good branch. Where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, what was his custom? He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. How many scriptures say, imitate me as I imitate Messiah? Or those who claim to be in Messiah should walk just as he walked or things like that. What was Paul's custom? Where do we find that? Acts 17 verse 2. His custom was also to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Verse 17 anyway. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. This is Isaiah chapter 61. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book. Gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Why? Yeah, he stopped in the middle of a verse. Why did he do that? Why did he only read this little portion? And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So it was the acceptable day of the Lord. It was the time of Messiah. The time that he would suffer and die for the sins of mankind. But it was not time for the day of vengeance. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 61. That's in verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where he stops. Well, let's see what follows. And the day of vengeance. Of our God. Yes, ma'am? So sorry. That Luke scriptures, that 419, wasn't he basically telling them that he was God? Well, yes. And that he was the anointed one that God had promised. Yes, all that. All of it. Because, uh-huh, verse 2, the day of vengeance of our God is the day of the Lord. It wasn't time for that yet. That tells us something really important and sometimes a little frightening. Within a sentence, we can jump 2,000 years in time. The fact that the first part of a verse is about 2,000 years ago doesn't mean the end of the verse can't be about a day which is yet to come. What does the scripture say? about rightly dividing the scripture. It means make sure you understand the time period. Because boy, God can jump around like the best of us. Ah. A little more about verse one. Do you see where it says to preach good tidings? That phrase, to preach good tidings, comes from the Hebrew word basar. 
The word basara means meat or flesh. So the good news that's being talked about here, the glad tidings, the good news, is that God came in a body of flesh and blood. Why is that good news? Well, God in heaven's the spirit. He's not our kinsman. And have you ever tried to nail a spirit to a tree? Would be unsuccessful. He had to take on a body of flesh and blood so that he could be our near kinsman, so he could be our redeemer. He was truly the word become flesh. Let's go to John chapter 1. And that is the sowed, the deeper meaning to the name Yeshua, as we talked about before. Yeshua, which means salvation, which is Messiah's name, comes from the verb yesha, which means to save. But to get from the verb to save to the noun Yeshua, salvation, you must add the Hebrew letter vav, which is the letter for man. That salvation came in the flesh. John 1, 1, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. That's the bizarre. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And again it said in Isaiah 61.1, He sent me to preach good tidings to the poor, and he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, bring liberty to the captives. Go to Matthew 5. To the Beatitudes. Matthew 5. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. Verse 2. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those are the meek, the humble, those who are willing to submit themselves to the word of God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. We talked about mourning over their sins, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, again the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? To crave it, you desire it. It's what gives meaning to life, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What does the scripture say? If you will not forgive your brother, you won't be forgiven either. Blessed are the pure in heart, those that walk uprightly before God, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who make peace between Jew and Gentile, as well as between God and man. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
So if people want to persecute us, they want to ridicule us, what's that? It's nothing in the grand scheme of things. Okay, back to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God again sets up the two-hand principle. You have opposites. God will proclaim favor for his people, but vengeance for his enemies, those who turn away from him, who reject him, who rebel against him. Let's look at Psalm 92, verse 9. Psalm 92, verse 9. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity, what's iniquity? Lawlessness shall be scattered. When the Lord returns, he's got two categories of people. Let's turn to Isaiah 66. Only two categories. Verse 14. When you see this, that is God defending Jerusalem, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, which is his protection, his benefit, shall be known to his servants, those who serve him, those who obey him. And his indignation, that's the wrath of God being poured out to his enemies. Which do you want to be? He lets us choose. Back to Isaiah 61, verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. See, this mourning right here is not just mourning over sin, but there's also a special sin that's being talked about here. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. Can everybody hear me in the back? Okay. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced. Who's that talking about? Our Messiah, Yeshua. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. What has taken place in Israel for this verse to be fulfilled? All Israel has been saved. They've repented. They've come back to God. And they will look upon Yeshua, whom they used to hate, and say we were wrong. And they will mourn. As happened in Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2 was just a little fulfillment of this. In Acts chapter 2, Peter tells the people gathered from across the world to Jerusalem for the feast of Shavuot, the feast of weeks, otherwise called Pentecost. Verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Yeshua whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now when he heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So this assembled group on this feast of Shavuot understood the severity of what they had done just a couple months ago when they were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Now they realize how wrong they were. And when it says they're cut to the heart, that's what it means. They're cut to the heart. What does Peter tell them to do? Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Could we actually be forgiven for such a heinous crime as calling for the crucifixion of God's only begotten son? The answer is yes. If God can forgive that, why can God not forgive? The answer is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, so don't do that. Let's go back to Isaiah 61, verse 3. To console those who mourn in Zion or Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. When do people sit in ashes? When they're mourning, when they're broken of heart. And they give them beauty for ashes. That is to remove the mourning, to remove the sadness. And to restore the joy. The oil of joy for mourning that is in place of mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Does God like praise? Does he like the song? Does he like the prayers of the saints? In Revelation, how do they describe the prayers of the saints? That's the incense that burns before God in heaven day and night. Have you given God any incense lately? Make sure you do. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. When it says trees of righteousness. Does that mean we're going to put out branches and leaves and fruit? No. What do you know about a tree that's planted and grown? It produces fruit and it doesn't move. That's what it's talking about here. The steadfastness. They will be steadfastly rooted in righteousness, never to sin again. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Believe it or not, Psalm 92 describes this a little more. So let's go back to Psalm 92, verses 12 to 15. It includes both the steadfastness I talked about and the fruit that Daniel talked about. Psalm 92, verses 12 to 15. 
The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. That's kind of eye-opening, isn't it? There is no unrighteousness in God. Let's take a look at a few of the scriptures that tell us to imitate Messiah. Let's go first to 1 Corinthians 11.1. I like to start there because it tells us in 1 Corinthians 12.2, you know that you were Gentiles. So you can't look at 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 and say, oh, God must be talking to the Jewish people. He's talking to all people. In 11.1 it says, imitate me, just as I also imitate Messiah. What does that mean? Do as I do, because I do what he did. Did the Apostle Paul sit around eating ham sandwiches? No. Did Messiah? No. What was Messiah's custom? Go to the synagogue on Shabbat, keep a finger here, and go to Acts 17. We mentioned it, but we didn't turn to it. Don't let me be lazy. Acts 17, 2. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. What's Paul's custom? Go, go to the Sabbath, go to the synagogue on the Sabbath to study the scriptures. Yeah, but Paul was Jewish. Well, turn back to Acts 13. You will not find any scripture in the Bible that says that the Gentiles gathered together on Sunday morning to worship God. It's just not there. What you do find, though, is them gathering together on Shabbat to worship God and to study the scriptures. Acts 13, verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now in the congregation, that's the same word synagogue as in verse 42. It's the same Greek word had broken up many of the Jews and devout proselytes. What's a proselyte? It's a Gentile convert. He's not born Jewish. Followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. That is, Jew and Gentile alike came to the synagogue the next Sabbath to hear the word of God. And that's what the Jerusalem Council said in Acts chapter 15. Start in verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. 
Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. What does turning mean? It means they're in the process. What must they do? They must learn. Where do they learn? It says, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, that is non-kosher food, and from blood. For, because... Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So if the Gentiles will do these four things in verse 20, avoid things associated with idolatry, sexual immorality, food killed in a non-kosher manner and from the blood of the animals, then they can come into the synagogue and learn for in the synagogues, the, the scriptures are preached every Shabbat. Come back to 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren. Remember, he's talking to believers that come out of the Gentile world. That you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. That word traditions is the Greek word parodesis, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word halakha. So Paul has been teaching these Gentile believers to keep the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Prove it. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 7. Therefore purge out the old leavens that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Messiah our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. What feast? Passover. Paul is teaching these Gentile believers to keep the feast of Passover as he's teaching them the rest of the commandments. In verse 9 of that same chap of chapter 6, Paul goes down a list of sins from the commandments of God. He says, if you're still doing any of these, don't think you're saved because you're not. All right, back to Isaiah 61 because I've forgotten why we went there. Okay. 61. We're up to verse 4. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. Have we seen that begun? Have we seen Jerusalem's rebuilding begun? What happened just this month? They have begun to cut the stones for the next temple. We're getting close, people. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Isaiah said the land of Israel would lay in ruins for many generations. How long has it been? Almost 2,000 years. That's many generations. How could God possibly tell us 2,700 years ago things that would be taking place today? Because he's God. And he tells us in Isaiah that only he can tell us the end from the beginning. 
This rebuilding continues into the millennial kingdom because in the tribulation period, Israel's going to take a lot of damage again. So verse 5 describes the millennial kingdom with Messiah on the throne. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Wait a minute, Israel's used to strangers trying to kill us, to take our flocks, to take our land. That's not what happens in a kingdom. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Will Gentile believers live in the land of Israel in the kingdom? The answer is yes. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 47. It tells us so in no uncertain terms. So instead of trying to kill Israel, they're trying to help Israel. Instead of destroying, they're rebuilding. Ezekiel 47, 21 to 23. Thus you shall divide this land amongst yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. I thought 10 of the 12 tribes were lost. Not to God. He knows exactly where they are. Shall be that you will divide it by lot. What does the lot mean? It means God decides which tribe gets to go where. As an inheritance for yourselves. An inheritance means from generation to generation. A permanent possession. And for the strangers. That's the Gentile believers. Who dwell among you. And who bear children among you. They shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that. In whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. Again, this thus says, my Lord, the Lord. So the Gentile believers will get to decide, do I want to be a part of Judah? Do I want to be a part of Issachar? Do I want to be a part of Shimon? Where do I want to be? That's where they'll be. And notice how it says in the last line or sentence of verse 22, they shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. This is the way it's always been. From the time of the Exodus, when the mixed multitude was grafted in, you did not distinguish between the children of Israel by physical lineage and the grafted in believers from the Gentile world. Prove it. Go back to Numbers chapter 15. It's just one of the many places. Numbers chapter 15. Which is the chapter about the Zitzit or the fringes. Verses 14 to 16. And if a stranger dwells with you, not one that passes through, one who dwells with you, to be like Ruth in the book of Ruth, to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If a stranger dwells with you, whoever is among you throughout your generations, and will present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. 
One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. An ordinance forever throughout your generations as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. If you think about those verses, they say the Gentile who gets grafted in, do they continue to live like Gentiles? No. The same laws, the same statutes, the same ordinances apply to them as to a native born of the children of Israel. But the New Testament says, well, let's look. Ephesians 4.17 A Gentile who gets saved, are they to continue to live like the Gentiles? Ephesians 4.17 This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. So then how do we walk? Verse 22 of the same chapter. That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Which means the Gentile that gets saved walks in accordance with the commandment statutes and judgments of Israel just as the Jewish people who get saved are commanded to do. Interesting. Go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 31. Starting in verse 9. We all know these words but it's good to be reminded of them now and then. So Moses wrote this law, referring to the book of Deuteronomy, and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time, that's a Moed. Which one? Feast of Tabernacles. In the year of release at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, the Ger HaSha'ar, the Gentile who wants to worship God, not be a pagan anymore. That they may hear, that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. That their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. In Zechariah 14:16, it is very careful to say that all Gentiles in the world will come up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles every year. What gets read at the Feast of Tabernacles every seven years? The Torah. So that if somehow they had not learned it before, they will learn it then. Back to Isaiah chapter 61. 
We're up to verse 6. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. Remember Revelation 1.6? What's the future of all believers to be kings and priests? They shall call you the servants of our God. What does a servant do? They serve the master. They obey the master. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast, which means they shall bring lavish gifts into the kingdom, as we've already described, gold instead of copper, etc., etc. The wealth of the nations will come to Israel because Messiah rules and reigns there. Verse 7, instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. What shame are we talking about? The shame of exile, captivity, slavery. You shall have double honor. Just like it said in the book of Job, the twice was restored to him. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. That is, they get to eat what they grow instead of growing it and let somebody else eat it. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Again, just like we read in Job. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. What's that word everlasting? It means forever. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth. What's truth? Torah, Psalm 119, verse 142. And will make with them an everlasting covenant. What do we call that everlasting covenant? That's the new covenant. Go to Jeremiah 31, 31. Verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It's actually a renewed covenant. With the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, laid them on the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, my Torah, that's the Hebrew word there is Torah, in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It is not possible that the law has been done away with or abolished, for God intends to write it on the hearts and minds of his children. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I'll remember no more. We said Psalm 119, verse 142. Let's go look at it because there's other verses that we want to add as well. Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law, your Torah, is truth. Then in verse 151, it says, You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. 
Then in verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. And then lastly, as we're about to close, Psalm 145, verse 18. Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him, how? In truth. His word is truth. And his word is truth. Yep, we remember from Proverbs, those who turn his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayers an abomination. But if you call upon the Lord in truth, he will hear. And that brings us to the end of our time for today. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 9.